and illustrating this with some discussion of pilot interviews that I conducted. The overarching aim of this research is to enhance understanding of the stability and change of walking and cycling behaviour over the life course. This research responds to the present and future public health challenge, uh, public health challenge presented by increasing levels of ill health related to physical inactivity, as well as transport objectives of reducing congestion and environmental impacts of travel. The principal research objective is to trial the application of a life course perspective in the research of walking and cycling behaviour. The life course perspective is a theoretical orientation that is applied to understand the pattern of lives and human development across time. While it does not denote any particular methods, it matured in the quantitative tradition of social science, prospering from the proliferation of longitudinal cohort studies in the 1960s. It was pioneered in research that looked at the impact of the Great Depression on the social and economic trajectories of individuals whose childhood coincided with this 1930s recession. The principles of the perspective direct attention to the interaction of individual development with the social and historical context. Some transport researchers are interested in this as a framework for research that would privilege personal history over present circumstances in seeking explanations for the development of travel behaviour. As yet, the transport research that adopts a recognisable life course perspective, life course perspective is limited to travel histories and includes work by Framberg that, that looked at young people's biographies of international travel. There's been wider use of this perspective in health sciences, where researchers are trying to integrate disparate, ex, disparate explanations for individual and group differences in health status into life course models of disease and health. A life course perspective prompts researchers to consider the temporal ordering and interrelationship of exposure variables, intermediary processes, and health and disease outcomes and in the process bring forth potential pathways that link early exposures with adulthood life and disease, uh, adulthood health and disease. Life course thinking has also been applied in considering the biographical course of health behaviours, for instance food choice and diet. Here, food choice is conceptualised as a trajectory running through the life course. The concepts brought together by the life course perspective are briefly that human development and ageing are lifelong processes. That is to say, development developmentally meaningful changes occur at stages of life beyond childhood. Linked to this notion, that, that linked to this is the notion that experiences are cumulative, such that experiences in earlier life can have a bearing on later decisions and behaviour. Secondly, that the life course is embedded in and shaped by the social and historical context. This means that the childhood walking and cycling experiences of somebody born in the 1950s may be quite different to those of a child of the 1990s. Thirdly, that the individual possesses an agency within their life course that is enacted within the constraints imposed by biology, history and social structure. Fourthly, that lives are lived interdependently, such that an event in one life will have resonance in another. For example, when a woman becomes a mother, her mother simultaneously becomes a grandmother. And lastly, that the timing of life events and experiences are also pertinent to the impression on a trajectory. So, for instance, the impact of acquiring a driver's licence may be different according to when in the life course it occurs. In summary, for my research to be theoretically orientated within this framework will require data that follows individuals and offers a whole life view. And for this data to be analysed with consideration of the interaction of human development with the social, historical and temporal context.
taking a different approach in research and walking and cycling is apparent in the limitations of the existing data. The National Travel Survey provides a time series that is generated from cross-sectional samples of the population and therefore offers no longitudinal insights at the individual level. It does, however, it does, however, indicate that average annual trip rates and distances for walking and cycling were in long-term decline in the second half of the 20th century. This trend is corroborated by the UK road traffic surveys, which show a decline in cycle traffic. The context for individual and walking and cycling in this period, then, was therefore a declining level of behaviour in the wider population. It is important to recognise the limitations of these sources without dismissing them out of hand. The National Travel Survey has occurred on an annual basis from the 1980s, with interrupted collections since the 1960s. At best, then, this source covers the lifespan of someone now in their mid-40s. The road traffic surveys, whilst covering a longer time frame, are not a source of data that can reveal walking trends, as the surveys are restricted to vehicular traffic on public roads. Finally, neither source captures walking and cycling activity in its entirety. Any cycling that takes place off, um, off public roads is excluded from traffic counts, and whilst the National, whilst the National Travel Survey respondents are asked to report walking and cycling for travel purposes only. In the course of considering the, the existing data sources, I also looked more broadly at population-level monitoring of physical activity behaviour. The rationale for looking at this data would be to understand whether, in the time period under consideration, the population as a whole became less physically active. In reality, the value of this data for the interests of this research is modest. Data on self-reported physical activity comes from the Health Survey for England and also, also constitutes a time series of data from the population sampled cross-sectionally. It is available from 1999 onwards, and even then is not an annual collection. Trend, trend analysis by Stamatakis that was conducted on the longest available course of time data at that time, and this was 1999 to 2004, showed an increase in overall physical activity, which could be differentiated into an increase in leisure time activity with a decline in occupational activity. This work, this work also included a trend analysis broken down by age and sex, but the point I wanted to highlight um, as was made by Stamatakis, was that such trends would be in contradiction to a concurrent rise in obesity. This leads researchers to question whether increased public awareness of obesity has made self-reported physical activity measures prone to a heightened social desirability bias. The implications for such an effect are for the consideration of all research involving self-report measures of physical activity. Returning then to the design of my research, I came to the conclusion that there were no existing sources that could be mined for longitudinal data on individual walking and cycling behaviour. Prospective data collection was ruled out on the basis that compiling a whole life view that extended just as far as early adulthood would be a lengthy process and far beyond the limits of my PhD. This orientated design of the research towards methods that would reconstruct walking and cycling trajectories. Taking a reconstructive approach invites questions about the relationship between the accounts produced and reality, which I've begun and will continue to think over as, as my uh, PhD progresses. The decision to work reconstructively also prompted further decisions to use interview-based techniques and make spoken narratives on the biographical course of walking and cycling the principal object of inquiry. The rationale, rationale behind this was that trajectories weren't fully amenable to quantitative methods, as this would overlook the highly individual, contextual, and subjective nature of, walking, of the walking and cycling experience. It was also felt that reconstruction would be more successful in an interview-based scenario, 
And at the time that I was working through this, I, I was conscious of the implications of this decision. It, it, it had implications for the, pre -question, uh, the search questions that I could ask. I'll talk a bit, a bit more about that later. From a relatively early stage in the research development, there was a commitment to explore the biographical course of walking and cycling from a more advanced stage of the life course, and to work, at least initially, with a participant group defined by birth cohort. The effect of defining the participant group in this way is that personal histories and walking and cycling trajectories under study are united by a common historical experience. I chose to focus on the leading edge of the baby boom generation, that is, adults born between 1946 and 1950. In a later slide, I will return to discuss why this makes for an interesting cohort. Before I do that, I'd like to describe the method which I decided upon after a process of piloting and refinement. The interview approach I'm going to use has been described by some as a narrative biographical method for its dual focus on biographical detail alongside narrative structure. Data collection will consist of a two-stage interview. The first interview will be structured around completion of a life grid, and I'll show you a visual of this later, that will capture biographical details along, along with information on walking and cycling experience. Life grids have been used in life history interviews focusing on smoking behaviour, and were found to be successful at aiding recall and ensuring the interview covered the whole lifespan. Between the first and second interviews, uh, um, myself, the interviewer, will have a chance to reflect on the interview and familiarise myself with, with the participant's biography and then structure an in-depth narrative interview that will re revisit events in the, in the life grid. The second interview, uh, this time also provides time for the participant themselves to reflect on the interview. And um, I'll, as I talk about my pilots, I'll uh, speak about what that brought up. The uh, second interview will include a combination of both explanatory and narrative questions of the type, what happened, and why do you think that happened? I'm just going to go back to this slide, um, and, and I had to spend some time reflecting on what the, um, using an out of biographical method, what would that mean, what was the status of the, uh, the data that my method was collecting, um, and so reading around that, um, I think the, 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 the impression that I'm getting that it is, will be a, a present perspective on past behaviour that is narrated with um, a future orientated, uh, with participant being future orientated. So then, um, given the methods that I was using and the perspective that I was wishing to adopt, what the, then does this mean my research questions? Well, I formulated my research questions as follows. There is an overarching research question which is, how does walking and cycling develop? thinking in particular about continuity and change over the life course of individuals. This is supplemented by four more detailed questions that will guide my analysis of the interview material. And these are, what shape do individual walking and cycling trajectories take? Are there common trajectories? How do people narrate their walking and cycling history? Do people have or construct cycling identities? I then have a further question which will guide a secondary part of the research, that is, how do the walking cycling trajectories of the baby boom parents compare with their children? And this I hope to look at in a subset of interviews with the adult children of some of my baby boomer participants. That's thinking why the um, focusing on the baby boom generation might be quite, quite interesting. I brought to this project um, in, from a background of public health an interest in the baby boom um, cohort as a generation um, and reflecting on 
why this makes for an interesting group. Um, this is a generation that already receives a fair amount of attention in the context of the challenges that society faces with an ageing population. As the largest living cohort throughout their life course, they've been described as the pig and the python, a description intended to convey their impression on society as they've passed through this de de uh, demographic course. Baby boomers have experienced many significant social changes which are likely to have influenced walking and cycling behaviour, perhaps the most dramatic and defining being motorisation. The oldest baby boomers are into their seventh decade and are either approaching or are settling into their retirement, having already negoti negotiated many early life earlier life transitions. They therefore have established walking and cycling histories. They enter retirement healthier and wealthier than any generation before them, which has prompted researchers working in this area to speculate that they will be pioneers of a new ageing experience. So my interest is in understanding what their narratives are at this stage in, in life, as where they may be thinking about, you know, they're making a transition that might prompt some sort of life review, and thinking about their, this new stage of life that they're going into, what are the narratives for and cycling that they construct. Here we have a, an example of the life frame. I apologise at the back, you won't be able to read what's on there. Um, it's um, taken from my pilot interview, with, which was with a, a six-year-old woman born in 1950. Um, and the life grid uh, basically, basically starts in 1950, and I've truncated, some of you up front will be able to see this has been truncated to get it on a slide, but runs from 1950 to, um, to 2010. And we go through the, um, this, the first interview structure around this life grid, and we mark on working from the third column from the left, um, key family events, birth of siblings, um, marriage, uh, birth of children, um, birth of grandchildren, as we've got on here, um, residence, where they moved, where they were at different stages of their life, they move into education, employment, um, uh, where, where they live, various places on there. Then the, the last two columns uh, um, talk about regular journeys that they would have made at various stages um, and, and pastimes that they were engaged in over the course of their life. Um, and we found that this was um, quite a useful tool. Um, they would, it wasn't filled in um, just by moving down the columns. There was a lot going back on and uh, readjusting. Oh, if, if you know if that's when I have my son, then that's when I went back to work, and oh, that's changed. And in the course of um, moving from the first to the second interview, when I came back to do the second interview the participant had actually said, oh, I had a few more things to add, and had, and had discussions with her mother, who was, seemed to be mentally still there, and you know, she was able to add more details to this life grid. Um, and, it, and it seemed to become something that was quite enjoyable as a project and focus for the, for the life in um, the interviews. So as I said, my pilot interview was conducted with a six-year-old woman, recently retired from a professional career, no reported health problems, and, um, and certainly seemed to be in good health. I mean, she mentioned playing netball up until she was 50, which is you know, probably pretty exceptional. Um, she was um, recently become a grandmother, and had, importantly, her daughter and family lived within the same city. She mentioned um, that she travelled independently from a young age, so she'd moved about the age of 10 from the countryside into central London, and it, um, her and her brother had made their own way to school using the um, she also mentioned going on excursions with her, with her friends back age 14, um, going youth hostel in Dartmouth and, and walking and using maps and things like that. 
she also, which was another interesting insight, which um, certainly flagged up social historical context for me when she mentioned it, was that her and her husband lived in Belfast in the 1970s and then early years of their marriage and just as she was starting a career. And there were loyalist strikes being held in Belfast, which suspended the transport system. And she was saying that having a bike there was absolutely crucial to, to getting to work. Um, she also talked about walking, um, the pleasure it gave her, particularly in nature, and a preference for walking if time constraints allowed. Her cycling trajectory, um, there was certainly bouts of cycling, and as I mentioned um, here, as a teenager in early career, when children were young and later in career. Um, and um, one, another way that the uh, method worked quite well over the course of the two interviews, it was um, she became more accustomed to the idea of, of walking and cycling trajectory, and then we actually used the um, life course towards the end of the, uh, the life course grid. Towards the end of the second interview, I asked her, well, what is your walking and cycling walking trajectory, and what is your cycling trajectory? And that moved on to a discussion of what her daughter, her son and daughter's walking and cycling trajectory might be in her perception. And also, she reflected on her parents' generation. Um, there were clearly occasions when a change of um, workplace had prompted a change of mode choice, and this was of, um, where possible she'd been able to choose an environmentally um, more sustainable option, and this was important to her. Um, and she was um, readily able to identify when her walking and cycling behaviour had been dictated by family or career. Um, she'd recently bought a bike with her husband, so there was, that was the sense that this narrative was future orientated. And, um, and this had coincided, I wasn't quite sure if one was associated the other, but it coincided with downsizing to one car. And she was certainly envisaging retirement as a time of fewer time constraints, more opportunity for leisure, grand, uh, potential grandchild care, and decreased car use. And there was certainly an environmental and health conscious narrative developing. So thinking about data analysis, um, interviews are going to be analysed separately. Um, Sorry, the, taking the two interviews, each case as, a, as an individual case, and um, they'll be, um, be coded um, using a deductive framework working from this life course principle, so looking for themes of interdependence, impact of the, the social and historical context, etc. Um, uh, in keeping with the narrative biographical method, um, I'll consider my um, interview material to consist of the life grid, which will give biographical detail, um, and the interview narrative, which is a told story, and those are people that, um, writings on the narrative biographical method use those terms. So, on in terms of the biographical detail, what events preceded change? What factors supported continuity? And do the subjects perceive any turning points in, retros in retrospect? And then looking, thinking about the narrative that's constructed, what is the subject's present perspective on their walking and cycling trajectory? And does the narrative convey a walking and cycling identity? And this schematic is meant to sort of, um, represent my thinking about where the analysis will go. So the, 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 um, we'll have the baby boomers here. Um, and I'll be looking and analysing them individually to try and get an idea of their narrative, but then looking at is there a looking for a typology of narratives, is there a master baby boomer narrative? Um, and then I'll be looking at the parent-child dyad, so looking, is there evidence of intergenerational um, influence on walking and cycling? And then three or four are sort of potential 
areas for further work. So is there a younger generation narrative? Um, and then is there an older, younger generation? Or do you a comparison there? So thinking about um, the preliminary issues that come out of the piloting process, um, there's, there's certainly a sense that um, it's easier for people to narrate a cycling trajectory. It's as key events when you got your first bike or any incidents on a bike or um, walking is something that is so much more fundamental to living. Um, but as I said, the, the, the structure of the interviews did help with that in that the people got this idea of a walking and cycling trajectory and were able to add um, to offer their insights on their own walking and cycling trajectory. Um, I'm definitely seeing that the, there's um, I need to gain skills as uh, a life history interviewer, um, and it, it is quite a skill. Um, but I you know, see that as part and parcel of a PhD research, research degree. Um, and there's issues around recruitment as well. This, this young, old population is, is not a very visible population. It can be difficult to find. Um, I've talked to the local authority about older services they run for older people, but their, their impression is that this group that I'm looking for don't really access those services. Um, so I'm going to be looking at um, contacting community groups and going along and explaining this is what I'm doing um, and trying to, because as I've noticed, it's, it's actually a process that um, the people actually quite enjoy and get something out of, so hopefully by introducing it to people, I'll find some um, participants. And that's, that's it, thank you.